Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios and the in the Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 20th of January, 2020, and I'd like to get started immediately, if I may. Since I hear no objections, I assume that'll be good. All right, so we have been talking about the central nervous system, primarily in association with aging and the effect of the immune system on the aging process, particularly in the CNS. We've talked about hormones. We've talked about bioenergetics. I want to go back and get a little bit deeper into our discussion on corticotropin releasing factor. We, we left off on that for a while for a very good reason, because I wanted to discuss um, some elements of the fear response. And in particular, I wanted to talk to you about two different secretory pathways that uh, become more apparent as you age, particularly in the central nervous system, but throughout the body. And those were the senescence-associated secretory phenotype, or SASP, which is pro-inflammatory, and then the MITIS, which is mitochondrial dysfunctional secretory, uh, and that's also a phenotype, and that tends to be anti-inflammatory. I told you about um, the players in terms of transcription factors, signaling molecules, trafficking of endosomes and exosomes in those two systems, Talk to you about levels of NAD and NADH, the glycolytic pathway, the oxide of pentose phosphate shunt, fatty acid metabolism, as well as the turning of the tricarboxylic acid cycle. We were in, deeply involved in the discussion of that because now I want to revert back to one order above, and that again is discussing hormonal regulation, which of course will become corrupted during aging. Right? All of these pathways coalesce in various non-uniform stochastic measures of inactivity and dysregulation into what results in a morbidity, both of a disease, series of disease states, which increase in episodic uh, presentation and severity as one ages, but certainly not uniformly even within one person and certainly not within a population. <clears throat> but that all that mor morbidity is linked to the aging process because of, of basically hypo or hyperimmune responses or, or checking the balance of one of those uh, extremes and then reverting to the other without a compensatory regulatory process, thus altering metabolism and key uh, cells which then can alter an immune response in a tissue leading to further damage after which a certain point is reached where cell division no longer can occur, a senescence phenotype is then equated and laid upon the landscape. And that accumulation of senescence phenotype is basically fundamental cellular physiology of the aging process. Okay. So let's go back to talk about the CRF. So the corticotropin releasing factor, exon terminals, 
are widely distributed throughout the central nervous system. The major action within the monoamine nuclei, and those, of course, are going to have widespread cortical projections, including regions uh, that are well-funded and critical for the executive function. So those are going to include some loci I've mentioned before, so I'm just reminding you, the locus coriolis or LC, the dorsal rafe, or the DR, and those represent primary sources of norepinephrine and serotonin to the cortex, respectively. So norepinephrine from the LC, and then serotonin from the DR, okay? Now, there are a narrow range of endogenous CRF levels, and they can each have a distinct non-monotonic effect on all the processes modulated ultimately downstream by norepinephrine and by serotonin. And that's because of differential expression of the CRF receptors, okay? And they're going to have a distinct level of expression in the LC versus the DR. So whereas the LC solely expresses CRF1 receptor phenotype, both CRF1 and 2 are found in the dorsal rafe. Okay, this is where you start getting some modification and diversification of activity, um, which essentially results in hormonal zonation and then subsequently metabolic zonation, something I spent a lot of time talking about in general biochemistry class. Now, I want to draw your attention, that's going to be a pun as you'll see, <clears throat> to a process known as extra-dimensional shifting of attention, which of course is going to be a CRF-mediated process, and it's going to involve quite intimately the medial prefrontal cortex. So let me get into what this means. Discrimination learning problems, which include affective, such as reversal learning, and attentional set, which is an extra-dimensional shift, components. Now, under the systemic influence of a compound called scopolamine, which is actually found in uncooked potato, and in uh, the leaves, particularly, of both tomato and potato, and all in that family, um, scopolamine is a well-known muscarinic receptor antagonist. So if you use scopolamine, it impairs both the reverse learning and what's known as the extra-dimensional shifting. But it was without effect on learning new discrimination problems that did not require an affective or intentional shift, as you might guess if it's excluded. Now, reverse learning means uh, just basically that you've learned how a cause will result in an effect, such as you put your hand in a flame and it burns it. Reverse learning is when you come upon a new event and what you believed to be a true cause-effect relationship does not work. Now, obviously, hand in the flame is always pretty much going to happen, right? But you can think of a lot of other much more subtle, um, let's say, psychosocial interactions where you may say something or you may make a nuance or you may roll your eyes, for example, 
or you may shift uh, your position of sitting. And in some social circles, that could be considered to be uh, unnoticed or unimportant. But maybe in other social situations, depending on where you are and how extreme the situation is, that could be considered to be a negative uh, way of uh, comporting oneself. So you would have to learn quickly that that is the wrong response. Now think about the other way. You experience something like um, you hear a sound in the dark and normally you equate that sound with your you know, wife coming in through the garage, coming up from work. It sounds like her moving or you hear footsteps, maybe hear keys jingling. And so you feel relaxed and you're sitting there and you're, you're watching uh, uh, your favorite sitcom or something. But then the door opens and it's not your wife. It's some intruder, right? Well, obviously that reverse learning is going to have to be functional very rapidly because now what you felt comfortable with and at ease with, you immediately have almost a 180 response to fact, certainly would be. Now, the extra dimension, extra dimensional shift is when you have a set of multiple conditions around you and your environment is well known and you know that things like the ceiling and the walls and the lighting are not going to have any potential to have to have you respond via fight or flight because they're just there. They're part of the furniture, right? As is the chair you're sitting in, the computer you're in front of, okay? The coffee you're drinking. But that whole environment may then be invaded with a new dimension, with a new response. So let's say off to the periphery, you notice that there's a light blinking and that light blinking, or, or maybe you hear a sound like uh, a good example would be a, a smoke detector going off, right? So that's beyond the dimensions of what you're dealing with. But nevertheless, you have to immediately respond to that, right? So the way your brain functions is through some of the circuitry we've been talking about, the CRF circuitry. And because norepinephrine and serotonin are involved, that is essentially locking into the fight or flee um, mechanism and mode of behavior, okay? So there's a dopaminergic input, okay? So you know that norepinephrine and epinephrine are part of that dopamine pathway, right? So there's a dopaminergic input to the striatum and the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, and that's thought to signal unexpected events like that smoke detector going off. And it should facilitate a shift in attention, you see, to promote immediate and new learning. So that's what that extra dimensional shift learning is, okay? A shifting of attention, okay? Now that's distinct from the reverse learning because that's just a 180, right? So <clears throat> prefrontal attentional processes have been shown to selectively ultimately tune into a task relevant stimuli during learning. So if you have a process, that, like for example, you're learning how to play the piano and you're used to playing a series of chords before you start your lesson or before you're teaching someone else how to play the piano, you're tuning that whole lesson process so that the task that's coming on, the task that's relevant to the stimuli, the stimuli is 
you sitting in front of the piano doing your chords, that's going to then precipitate the correct mental state to start learning something new. Okay. So that's prefrontal attentional processing. I know some of these things, it's like a lot of definitions and don't blame me because I'm not a uh, biological, uh, I'm not actually a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychiatrist or a biological psychiatrist. I've only worked in neuroscience for a few years, but this is the kind of terminology they use. And it's interesting, right? Because it explains a lot about behavior. Of course, a lot of this comes from animal models. Let's not forget. Now, <clears throat> paper published in Neuroimage back in 2008, I will put the uh, citation in the show notes, says the following. In the human somatosensory system, there is what is known as a contralateral primary somatosensory cortex. Just call it the SI. Okay. Now, it's presumed to process and encode a type and intensity of a sensory input. So a type, so it's going to give you a modality, and then intensity, it's going to give you a quantity. Okay, so those two formal aspects of um, event thought processes. Now that, now the, keep that in mind, whereas the bilateral secondary somatosensory cortex, which is going to be the S2, okay? So the somatosensory cortex is the, um, it, it overall is just S or SC, the S1 is the first one I described to you. The S2 is a bilateral, and so it's secondary. And it's believed to perform higher order functions, including such things as sensor and motor integration, an integration of information from two body halves, attentional learning, and indeed even memory. Now, this paper did an fMRI study where they looked at the effect of attention on the activation of both of those somatosensory cortices, one and two. And they did it by inducing a non-painful and then painful rare deviant electrical stimulus during somatosensory, what they call unusual or oddball tasks. Of course, the animal model. So the working hypothesis of stronger effects of attention on S2 with respect to S1. Now remember that's because S2 is bilateral and it's involved in higher functions. So you think there's gonna be likely a, more, a stronger effect on intentional interactions with the S2 mode, okay? So they did four different experiments and they acquired um, an overall, what they call an oddball scheme, okay? Or unusual series of events. And what they found is frequent, non-painful, electrical stimuli were delivered to the ulnar nerve at a motor threshold, whereas a rare deviant one was delivered to the medial nerve or median nerve in four conditions with one conditional change per run. Non-painful, painful, counting non-painful, counting painful. Okay. Now the results show statistically significant fMRI activation in the bilateral S2 is what they would have predicted, but not in the contralateral, right, S1, when the rare deviant medial nerve stimuli were delivered at non-painful and painful levels. 
as well as the two levels of attention considered. That is, for example, associated with counting and non-counting tasks. So this is occurring while the subject is counting, okay, to keep track of their mental processes, you see. So the fMRI activation of S2 did not differ across different levels of stimulus intensity. And the way they measure intensity is having it from painful to non-painful. Um, and attention. And the attention is recorded as counting or non-counting, right? So overall, those results seem to corroborate an idea that's been floating around previous to this paper, that the S2 mode is the target of independent pathways for the processing and integration of non-painful and painful somatostimuli, which is salient for any further higher order elaboration. And that's because they feel like they've been able to tease out the attentional aspect of re requiring some kind of higher order level in the brain counting with the non-attentional um, deficits generated by the shock, which does require also a person to respond to, but not with the quantitative medial prefrontal cortex attention necessary. Right? So the response is different in its mode of action. That's what they're saying. That's what they were trying to show. So, <clears throat> Now, I'm going to explain something to you that's going to require a little bit more uh, detail. So you have something called the anterior cingulate cortex. And, okay, now this, this activates, this is, a, this is a particular cortical region in the brain, it activates in response to salient stimuli. Now, saliency is defined as anything, any item, any item, of event item, that is going to be distinct from anything else around it. So while they frequently investigate a visual context, salience, of course, could include auditory, tactile, or any of the other sensory stimuli, okay? But visual is the most often one used in experiments dealing with people. Now, it essentially boils down to when a stimulus is distinct, you pay more attention to it. And that seems to be generated around the ACC, okay? Now, then there's the PCC. That's the posterior cingulate cortex. And functional imaging there has shown consistently that emotional stimuli activate that cortex, the PCC. And of course, that's a region that appears to have memory-related functions. Okay. PCC is significantly activated bilaterally during both unpleasant and pleasant experiences compared to neutral experiences. Okay, so the two extremes, but not something that is neutral or has not either a pleasant or unpleasant presentation. Another component of the system is the basal ganglia, of course. And I think most of us know this, but it refers to a group of subcortical nuclei responsible for primarily for motor control. And it does have other roles in motor learning, executive functions and behaviors, and even it is linked into emotions. Okay. So, and we keep in mind you have that those systems going, the ACC, the PCC, and the BG, but you also have the second somatosensory area that I just explained to you, okay? 
So with the overall mediation going on here, you have a structural functional plasticity, and that's going to link up to signal to noise ratio tuning. Okay. And that's going to be linked up to the posterior cingulate cortex. Then you're going to have an upregulation in neuropathic pain and in the, uh, and in the pain associated with the receptor for the CRF, which is involved in analgesia, okay, which is a removal of the pain. And so the two different receptors are going to play different roles. M2 is going to be involved in upregulation of neuropathic pain, and, and M2 is going to be dependent in analgesia, whereas M1 is going to mediate a deactivation of the acetylcholine receptor responses, okay? Now, that's another key feature here. So that's going to link up to both ascending and descending modulation. And that's going to be all within the supraspinal cholinergic action potential. You also have a spinal cholinergic action potential which is going to involve excitability of the spinal neurons and, of course, uh, involve necessarily spinal presynaptic release and peripheral excitability. And those are going to be linked directly to the motor responses, okay? That's a little bit of neuroanatomy thrown in there because I want you to have a good, you know, an image in your mind of what's going on here. So I want to remind you, once again, that the locus coriolis is densely innervated by the CRF axon terminals, and they originate in the central nucleus of the amygdala. Okay. You also have paraventricle nucleus of the hypothalamus and the PVN, something called Barrington's nucleus, and then finally the nucleus paragigantocellularis. Now, these are all uh, uh, nuclei in the CNS that correlate to specific functions because of their different um, sensitivity to which axons stimulate. And then subsequently, after the postsynaptic neuron, what is the result? For example, norepinephrine release, you see. So local CRF infusions and behavioral stressors will actually shift the mode of the LC, the locus coriolis activity to a high tonic discharge rate, but a blunted, now this goes back to what we talked about about five minutes ago, sensory evoked phasic response. When that mode of activity is associated with enhanced scanning attention and what is necessary after, you do, after you're, you're enhancing your scanning of the environment is a behavioral flexibility such as fight or flee, you see? And that is all part of what we just naturally would call an adaptive response to a stressor. And probably it's very important in the central nervous system because it promotes survival, right? Now, CRF concentrations in that, in the LC, lowest coriolis, do influence distinct components of behavioral flexibility. That's been well shown. That's why the CRF is linked to things like fear, anxiety, right? And then subsequent psychological sequelae like depression, okay?
So, for instance, moderate concentrations of an intra-LC-CRF that increase discharge from that locus coriolis by about 50% will enhance cognitive flexibility. They can measure this by looking at, by doing an experiment, studying extra-dimensional shifting, what I already explained to you. See, that's why I told you what it was before we started this. And that's going to be between different rules, rules set down in your mind because of your experience, strategies, your own strategies in association with your response time and mode, or even sets of all that phenomena, okay, as you might, of course, guess in real life, that's associated with neuronal activation, ultimately where the executive decision has to occur, which is in the medial prefrontal cortex. So there's a dose-dependent effect, see, of the CRF on those processes, on that extra-dimensional shifting. And the medial prefrontal cortex activation, which is going to be the result of that. And that's all consistent with a well-documented, what they call a, an inverted U-shaped modulatory action of the subsequent norepinephrine release which is, occurs on the prefrontal cortex neuronal activity, and then whatever function is a resultant of that, okay? which is going to be more neuronal stimulation. All this is associated with preferential engagement of the alpha-2 adrenergic receptor at low levels of norepinephrine, but at the alpha-1 beta receptor, when you get increased or very high levels of norepinephrine. So I told you before, there's a quantitative and a qualitative difference in how different um, nuclei within the central nervous system that are associated with stress response function at the biochemical level. And remember also a couple of episodes ago, I explained to you how that argues for a top-down controlling mechanism. Because the individual experiences that one has, like reverse learning after you've learned something, or this extra dimensional shift because of the environmental changes in, in the current status of events has to do with thought processes which are emanating from decision-making from the prefrontal cortex. So it's not that these biochemical and cellular mechanisms occur and then the self recognizes later that's what they're doing. The self, because it already comes with uh, preformed synapses and length of axons and microglial interactions because of the development of the central nervous system for that one individual and all the epigenetic changes that have occurred over a lifetime in the expression of all the genes necessary to run this um, neurochemical response. They're already poised in a certain way right, and unique to the individual. So just because we see patterns, we see patterns because it's the same um, neurochemical interactions that are going on at the level of biochemistry and cell physiology, but they're unique to the individual. That's why some people may get really frightened at a response one time and then another subsequent time with the same response, not get a blunted fear, but an entirely different individual may always be frightened by the response. Right? 
So that that explains a lot of what self-adaptation to stress stimuli. And that's what I'm trying to get at here in these series of lectures. Okay. So next time I'm going to talk about psychological stress that's, of course, linked directly to fear and anxiety. And we're going to be talking about the intracerebroventricular CRF infusions. Okay. It's going to be another region of the brain we need to look at. And this is going to go back to for us talking about this extra dimensional shifting, which is still necessary. Okay. So we're going to be shifting from biological psychiatric terms to neurochemistry and then to straightforward biochemistry and also my nuanced uh, epistemology and metaphysics. All right, so this is uh, Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from uh, that authentic biochemistry studio in the Pacific Northwest. And what I have to say now, on the twenty-first, on the twentieth, excuse me, of January, twenty twenty-one, lots of twenties and twenty-ones there, right? Um, is bye for now.